This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Rocky Howe. So before we start, Rocky, maybe you can just introduce yourself first. Um, hi everyone, I'm Rocky. Uh, I do research and advocacy. I'm at the Kasia Resettlement Team, which is a group of volunteers that work with low-income families living in public rental housing in Singapore. I um, also do other research on housing and land issues. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about this Cassia resettlement sort of like project that you're involved in? I understand this is also your first entry point into being a researcher on sort of like public housing in Singapore, right? Yeah, so basically we worked with residents who were being relocated by the government mm-hmm. from an old estate which they lived in, which was the Koda Crescent. Um, so this was about 400 households. The estate has been around since the 1950s. It's one of Singapore's earliest public housing estates that are still remaining. Mm. Um, it was built before our independence. Mm-hmm. And then um, after that, in 2014, the residents were told that they were going to be relocated to a new rental housing block. Um, and that, hap- that relocation happened in 2016. Mm-hmm. So, we, so as I understand it with the Singapore government, when they under the HDB scheme, if you are relocated, you're normally compensated with, I don't know, either a, a new unit mm-hmm. in a nearby location or there might be some sort of like compensatory scheme. Mm-hmm. Is this not uh, something that was viewed as favourable or, or fair mm-hmm. in this instance? Yeah. yeah. So there are two parts to that story. One is that the... Residents have been living in that estate for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. So there's a very strong sense of community and the residents really like that space. But um, these are rental housing tenants, so they're mostly low-income families. So when the state relocated them, um, in some ways the compensation they offered wasn't a lot. So they offered only $1,000 in allowance to relocate. Um, mm-hmm. And unlike homeowners in um, other public housing in Singapore, they don't get any... Uh, they don't get any compensation in terms of the value of the house because they're not homeowners. Okay, so yeah. you, you're saying that these residents are actually renting uh, the units yes. from the government yeah. and this is a long-term kind of... Uh, is this under contract or uh, a sort of like scheme yeah. that has been in existence for a very long time? Yeah. So, yeah, so we, always, yeah. we have always had a public rental housing scheme. Um, so the tenants tend to be... Uh, means tested. Okay. Um, so they have to show they are either unemployed or not making a lot of money. And then they'll qualify for rental housing, which they have to renew now uh, every two years mm. under the rental housing tenant scheme. Okay, yeah. right. This also sort of means that they are, they're in a very volatile sort of like state, right? Are there no uh, schemes or initiatives that's trying to sort of like encourage them to own homes in Singapore? Uh, what's the sort of like, you know, the discourse around home ownership like? So in Singapore, we have about 90% home ownership rate. Okay. Um, 80% of which... That's huge. Yeah, that's very mm-hmm. huge. Right. Yeah. I think Malaysia is only about 70% Right, right, right. Right. And, and 80% of that is public housing. Okay. Um, so definitely home ownership and this idea of being a homeowner in Singapore is a very big part of our public discourse. It's a very big part of our social imagination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's often talked about in terms of, you know, being the political legitimacy of the government, having moved Singapore from the third world, quote unquote, the third world to the first world. Mm. And a big part of that is this idea that we've built housing for a large proportion of our population. Mm. Um, but as a result, rental housing tenants in Singapore have, have become a residualized or marginalized segment um, of the population. There are only about, 
I think the best statistics I can find shows about only about two percent of our population actually lives in in rental housing. Okay, um, well, that's not, because so. Who are the people who normally continue to rent despite the fact that there's such a huge push towards home ownership? Yeah. So these are mostly low-income families, and we actually see a lot of, especially with the community that we work with, we mm-hmm. see a lot of single. Um, elderly men who actually live alone mm. uh, and who have very little uh, family or family support. Okay. Yeah. As I understand that during this, uh, you know, uh, my understanding of Dakota Crescent was also because I think a friend about 10 years ago or maybe about 5 to 10 years ago, I don't recall the exact uh, number of years, but uh, he started off um, engaging with the residents principally through, you know, the heritage sort of like sector. Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to gazette the buildings you know, as one of the first few sort of like public housing uh, building initiatives in Singapore that was built by the then uh, SIT, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Singapore Improvement Trust. Mm-hmm. And these would be sort of like, you know, examples of the first sort of like, you know, wave of sort of post-war uh, public housing. But you, I think, also yesterday mentioned that now conversation over the course of our conversation mentioned that there are limitations to this sort of like discourse if you use heritage as a discourse why do you not sort of like favor heritage mm. as a way to sort of like think about this issue so i think we have a very in terms of the work we've been doing uh, at the coda we have a very mixed relationship with the kind of heritage push that has taken place mm-hmm. um, in some ways that heritage push has gotten a lot of public discourse uh, a lot of public attention to brought a lot of public attention to the coda crescent but we really wanted to shift the narrative away from heritage mm. to try and understand um, what is the cost to the community in this process of relocation. And that's something that was, you know, uh, just a few years ago, very unattended to. Right? You don't understand the social and psychological cost of being told to move. Okay. Um, you don't understand how it affects the links, that the link, and, you know, the strong networks and the links which the community has mm. as a group. But having that space gazetted doesn't mean that the residents are able to sort of like stay on there in the Kota Crescent itself? Is that not how it works uh, uh, in the heritage sort of like practice or discourse mm-hmm. in Singapore? Um, no, at, at least not specifically for the Kota Crescent. Okay. So what has happened is that the government, after a lot of, sort of advocacy around heritage conservation, and the government had decided to conserve six out of 15 blocks of the Kota Crescent. Mm-hmm. That was an announcement. And they're going to redevelop the rest for public housing and find some way to actually kind of utilize that space too. But the residents don't actually get to move back in. So if you ask the residents you know, today, some of them feel very, yeah, yes, the place is conserved, but it doesn't really mean much to mm. me in that sense. But more generally, I think heritage conservation in Singapore always comes with this process of you know, gentrification. Mm-hmm. Um, we are always trying to find sort of users, like buildings that are conserved tend to become, sometimes they become like commercial spaces right. or they become like art spaces. Mm. So I think that pays very little attention to what happens to the community that has been displaced or moved out of these spaces. Right, right. You know. So what are the costs we're talk- what, what, what are the costs that uh, you, you are thinking to sort of like address through your advocacy sort of work? It might not be sort of like immediately visible to, you know, our, our generous audience, right? Can you sort of like walk us through like what you have discovered through uh, being part of this res- resettlement team? Um, so there are a few things. One yeah. is once that sort of like social, psychological trauma that comes with being relocated from a place that you have stayed mm-hmm. in for many years. Um, another aspect of the relocation in Dakota Crescent was that most of them experienced a, a shrinkage in the size of their homes. Okay. So in, in, in this early estate, um, the size of housing is usually two to three rooms. Okay. But if you are single and elderly under the current rental housing scheme, 
um, you can only get what is effectively a studio. Oh, so right. it's like one room. Um, usually there are no like there's no separate kitchen space, and, and then you, like there's we have a small bathroom attached to it. And you pay the same amount of rent. Yes, you okay. usually would pay the same amount of rent. Right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what, what? Why are you sort of like interested in this issue? Like, uh, how did you even get into it? I understand you come from a law background. Yeah. 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 Uh, so. And in a law career, I don't know, a, in a glitzy sort of like uh, office in downtown Singapore is not attractive to you? Not particularly. Okay. I mean, yeah. yeah, I don't really intend to pursue mm. law in that sense. I think what really got me interested was really trying to understand um, what this wider, uh, what's this wider relationship between home ownership in Singapore and rental housing. Mm-hmm. Because rental housing communities are a very ignored group in Singapore. Mm. And what the Dakota residents went through was effectively a huge shrinkage of space. From 15 blocks, they were moved into one big block. Mm-hmm. right? And in Singapore, we oftentimes have a narrative that people who stay in rental housing are, you know, they, they, uh, and poor people in general tend to be lazy, you know, they're not, you know, they don't work hard and therefore they're not moving up the property ladder. Right, right. So it was for me an entry point into kind of questioning my own participation in into this idea of home ownership, my own participation into idea of like property in in, in Singapore. Right, right. right. Um, there was a HSBC survey that say that Singaporeans spend three times as much time uh, looking up property, uh, looking up property on the internet or researching property than reading bedtime stories to their children. Right. Why, and why says, this anxiety and why this obsession? <laughs> yeah, I think this obsession with property and an obsession of Home ownership ah. is something that has been that's something we have internalized over the last fifty years, right? For a few reasons. One is that we have always told that home ownership is a way of having a stake in your society. Right. It's also a way of accumulating wealth, right? right. Of, of, of so you have a property, the the pro- value of the property goes up, and then you get to sell that property, and you flip that property, and you make money, mm. right? But of course, this system comes at a, a very significant, for me at least, a very significant cost. Mm to people not living in, uh, who are not owning their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also comes to at, at a significant cost to people living in homes that have bought, right? They're always caught up with this economic pursuit of upgrading their property size. Right, right, right. Okay, right. And therefore having to, I guess, play to the tune of like uh, what the state expects you to be, like the good citizen that the state expects you to be. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Is home ownership a cultural expectation there for society in Singapore? Are you expected to own property in order for you to be seen as somebody who has made it, quote unquote? For sure, yeah. Mm. And, and in some ways, your your social value is judged by the size of the property you own, right? right? Mm. So in some ways, like the, you know, this, the idea, in fact, um, I think there was a new study that came out of the statistic the other day that 75 to 90% of the wealth Mm-hmm. of the lower half of Singaporeans, right, in terms of income, is actually tied up in property, okay. right? And, and that's usually public housing that you own. Right. So in some ways, the size of your home and the kind of house you live in, mm-hmm. right, really reflects your social position in that sense. So, so that's, that's one aspect of, I think, the Singaporean homeownership system that's so problematic, right? And the other part of it is that, like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of my... So I, when I got married about two years ago, like, the first thing most people ask me is, oh, are you going to buy a public housing flat? Are you going to get a built-to-order flat? You know, So there's a lot of social pressure to kind of conform 
to that system, right? To say, okay, the next step is to, you've got a family, you've got a job, okay, next step is buy property, right? right? And yeah. then a few years down the road, they say, are you going to upgrade your property, right? So, so that, that's the kind of expectation that, that Singaporeans have of each other. What okay, do you mean by upgrade? Yeah. What's the word? Up, what, what's the what's the meaning behind the word upgrade? Yeah, like, do you house, move huh? to a bigger house? Is yeah. that right? Or you renovate Quite, your house? <laughs> or, or do you renovate it? Or do you move to a bigger yeah. property? So, so renovating is one part of the story. Okay. In terms of like how nice your furnishings are. Right. Um, but the other big part of it is actually moving away from public housing uh-huh, into to, a condo, into, into private housing, into right. a condo. And in some ways, that's that's the irony of the system, right? You have built a country that's that's lauded for success in, in public housing. Mm. But a lot of the a lot of our citizens simply can't wait to move into private housing mm. and a lot more expensive private housing. Okay. Right. right. You know, I I got a taste of this sort of like ritual and from an anthropological sort of like perspective, it's quite interesting. What I sort of like found out is that a lot of Singapore middle class Singaporeans when they sort of like buy a new home, once they've done like their furnishing they would very often sort of like invite a group of friends over, right? Mm-hmm. And what happened during that sort of like gathering is that they would take you through each and every room and then you're supposed to sort of like admire how great the room is and how tasteful the furnishing is and you go through this ritual that you get recognition and reinforcement from your friends, your immediate sort of like, you know, uh, community that, yes, you have sort of made it, you have arrived at this particular station in life. Uh, so in some ways, I'm very sort of like fascinated by how a ritual is also built around this idea of home ownership. <laughs> I don't know if you feel like, is this like a common is this common for Singaporeans? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it happens. <laughs> it does happen a lot. Because uh, I don't think we do that here, no. Uh, or at least I, I have very seldom sort of like, you know, experienced this un- until I go to Singapore and a lot of my Singaporean friends will, when I'm in town, will subject me to this ritual. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so on that note, let's take a break first. You're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Varudin and Simon Soon. And this week we're joined by Rocky Howe and we've been talking about housing and land issues in Singapore. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you tune in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin, and I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest of the week, Rocky Howe. Um, we've been talking about the housing and land issues in Singapore, and one of the things that I think we should talk about is the relationship between public versus private housing system, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So in, in Singapore, private housing is seen as complementary to this very large public housing homeownership system. Mm-hmm. So um, usually what happens is that the state will grant plots of land to private developers, or actually there are some government-linked developers that build condos and you know, expense, more expensive housing for the, you know, the, the upper middle and the upper class people who actually want to buy these houses. Mm. Right? So, so a part of the system is, is that aspirational sense in which mm. people, and that, market, that private housing market is created because people aspire to move up that mm. property ladder. On some level, that is like, uh, you know, in the 90s, there was this thing called this, well, something like a Singapore dream, right, where you have the five Cs. Uh, but I, I've stopped hearing people sort of like talk about the five Cs. Have the aspirations changed? That's, uh, uh, back then, it was like the condo, the car, and then the country club membership. And what else is there? There were five Cs, I remember. Cash. Cash, yes. Credit card. Credit card, yeah, yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So what happened to the five Cs? Is that, uh, is that no longer the sort of like dream of sort of like your average middle-class Singaporean? I think it still is to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not the country club bit, which is actually really interesting and you can come back to that in a moment. Right. Um, but I think there's a sense in which like these five Cs have become 
a bit more techy to kind right. of say outright like, mm-hmm. hey, I have five Cs and I'm really out to pursue them. Right, right. right. So right. I, I think there's a bit of reflexive self-awareness that, you know, yes, you want to pursue wealth and property mm. and, and things like that, but you don't really want to... The, the ostentatious. Yeah, to be so right, ostentatious right, about right. it. <laughs> yeah. and, but the country club kind of thing has kind of fallen out of fashion. Okay. I think because it, it, it was... In some ways, there's this very colonial history as well, right? There are country clubs and exclusive spaces right. for people. I think that's fallen a bit out of fashion. Mm. But actually, we have noticed that um, the government has been, over the years, have been taking away land from country clubs right. for other uses, right? So in some ways, that, that has taken up some space in the public imagination that country clubs are kind of a diminishing past. Okay. Right, right. And in replacement, you get what? Culture? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe like cultural participation and, and consumerist kind of like lifestyles. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, but yeah. going back to the mm. condo bit, right? Mm. Um, I think what's really important to point out in terms of the system widely is the sense that I think the idea that public housing has always been to provide affordable housing right. for the large majority of population also reinforces the idea that private housing is actually Exclusive. made for developer profit. Right, right, right. Now the goal of the private housing is actually to increase the total economic value available in Singapore. Right, right. So in some ways that, you know, the HDB sort of like investment is also seen as much as an investment, you know. It's it's no longer a safety net. It's also something that you can speculate with on some level. Yes. Well, how does the system sort of like allow for this kind of like speculation to happen? So in, I guess in various ways. So one of the things that happens is that when you first purchase a, mm-hmm. a public housing flat, so like a, a built-to-order flat, right. the government gives you quite significant subsidies as a first-time home purchaser, Right. But subsequently, when you sell your house, the resale value of the house is often much higher than the original price mm. that you purchase it at, subsidies included. Okay. Right. And the idea is that you take that resale value of the house and then you purchase a larger flat on the resale market. Okay. And over time and over the years, as the Singaporean economy does well and, you know, as the value of everyone's housing goes up, mm-hmm. right, you're able to purchase bigger and bigger houses Okay. with whatever you have just sold. Right, right. right. Yeah. So right, I, 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 think, I think part of that whole financialization process or, or seeing the house as, house as an asset rather than a home in which, you know, you can stay in, you can feel safe, mm-hmm. you know, where, where you can be part of a, a community really also comes with that promise by the Singaporean state that, you know, everyone's wealth will continue to grow right, through this okay. medium called property. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, this all sounds like, uh, you know, is this a sort of like imagination that is sort of like popular across all different sort of like segments of society? What about those segments that can be sort of like fictively, classified fictively under this sort of like term that Singaporeans start using to label this sort of like other, right, that they call heartlanders? Is this the heartlander dream as well? To some extent, um, I think... So like in some ways, like there's a very interesting history to this heartlander term, right? right? In some ways, it really caught the public attention and imagination in the 1990s. Right. Uh, so I've been told, because I wasn't really right. there then. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that was a recent article by uh, in Rice Media, right? By on, on on how George Yeo and Sumiko Tan were the ones who were instigating. Yeah, kind of imagine yeah. this this heartlander right. term, right? And. Or brought it to life, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and there's that sense in which, like, you have you have a contrasting class of 
or segment of the population called cosmopolitans, right? Right. And the idea that cosmopolitans very tuned in into the international setting, mm-hmm. whereas heartlanders are, are people who you know live very simple everyday lives mm. and don't really have this global imagination. Right. Right. So right. so in some ways it's it's very entangled with, I, I guess this is really entangled with like what it really means to be you know a good citizen or what mm-hmm. are the ideals of citizenry in Singapore. Mm-hmm, right? And I think to link that to property also, mm-hmm. I think the expectation at least nowadays, right, as people begin to flip property or begin to buy more properties, is that people look beyond Singapore mm. in making purchases of uh, condos and private housing elsewhere. Okay. So, I mean, there are stories of people who, who say, um, okay, I'm going to buy properties in places like Vietnam or Malaysia, not just because the land prices are cheap, mm. but also because like, they, they can see the future value right. of the house going, like, future value of the property and the property market in this country is going up. Mm. So, so that's both about wealth but that's also about your ability to kind of speculate, right? It's, right. A, it's a skill, it's an imagination, or, you know, it's a skill set that you have. Mm. So that, that plays a role in like, you know, oh, what makes you a economically productive citizen in that mm. sense too. So in some ways, you got to have that pot of money to begin with mm. in order to sort of like uh, start investing, right? Um, um, yeah. For sure. And I think it's important to point out, right, going back to uh, homeowners versus yeah. rental housing, right? As to why there's such a significant gap in the wealth mm-hmm. between rental housing and homeowners. Because the government provides so much subsidies right. to first-time buyers, you usually are able to buy a house the first time mm-hmm. beyond you know, what you can actually afford. Right? Okay. Right? So like you, you're, it's actually more than your actual purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Right? So as a result, and then when you sell that house, of course, all that money comes to you. Mm. So, but whereas rental housing tenants or people who are not homeless don't actually have that footstep into the system mm-hmm. because they never get, they never really have enough money in the first place to actually participate in the property market in this fashion or participate in the property ladder mm-hmm. in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's really important to point out how home ownership and this housing system actually continues to reproduce mm-hmm. that economic inequality between homeowners and rental housing tenants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is the accumulation of like multiple properties among the wealthy there, is, is there something that's happening in Singapore as well? Yeah. So, they buy lots of properties there and then maybe flip them? Yeah. yeah, so there are really stories of many stories of how people have made their wealth through property. Mm. And it involves being okay, I'm I'm able to choose well which condo I want which condo property I'm gonna buy and you know, five years down the road you you can sell it for a higher price. So people end up buying two, three properties. And there are you know, there is a group of citizens who do nothing but just buy and flip properties over time. Mm. And that's how a lot of wealth is accumulated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Perfect. I guess the Okay, you know, I was actually just sort of like going to ask, given that you have given us an impression that it is uh, systemically, it's such an, and discursively, it's such an over-determining sort of like structure that's in place, right? How do you imagine as someone who wants to sort of like ask some critical questions around sort of question of the land justice mm-hmm. and land issue uh, or housing sort of like issue? In what ways can you sort of like intervene into the conversation, mm. or what are you gonna, you know, how are you gonna make them listen, or how do you how do you sort of like create a public who might want to think about this issue differently? So I think what's really important when it comes to that having that conversation about land justice or land rights even is that oftentimes it it is imagined in terms of do people have, especially indigenous people, mm-hmm. have a right to access or use the land, but I think the land justice question needs to be extended to address the question of where does the value generated on and from the land actually go? So so really it's about the distribution of uh, whatever yield 
whatever is uh, yeah right okay yeah, whatever you is generated through the property and I think it is the case that you know a large segment of Singaporeans. In fact, this is not just about Singapore. It's, it happens in every country in the mm-hmm. world. A large portion of the population doesn't actually benefit from the value generated on the land. Okay. Right. The, that that the value generated on the land, whether through rent because it's a commercial space, always goes to the landowners or investors in the land. Mm. Right. So I think once we begin to kind of look at what the purpose of land is mm-hmm. and what you know where the value of land is going to then we really begin to kind of re-question, okay, what should land be used for? Mm-hmm. Who actually owns property? Mm-hmm. And why has the system made it in such a way that you know, land generates financial value for the few rather than the many? Right. Yeah. I guess sort of like, um, you know, making these sort of like structures more visible is, is one thing. Uh, then maybe the second sort of like follow-up question is, and what is an alternative sort of like solution to this? Are you also exploring that or are you at that phase where it's more about consciousness raising? And that's an important enough sort of like component to get people to realize that there is a systemic problem in how we sort of like think about land issue today. I think, I think the consciousness raising really needs to be done because okay. at the end of the day, the government in Singapore and in fact, in fact, not just the government, but, you know, the private property developers have mm. so much influence as to what the system what the system is like. And we don't really know how a lot of that takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was a recent, a great book actually written by this person called Brett Christophers. It's about the UK land system, okay. right? And he explores how over the last 30 to 40 years, half of public land in the UK has been sold or has been privatized. Mm. Right. And he links it to the fact that 30% of the members of parliament mm. in the ruling Conservative Party are actually landowners themselves. Mm. Right. So that highlights a point about like who is actually determining and who's actually shaping that system. Mm. And and this book was only published this year or the end of last year. Mm-hmm. So really it's an underexplored issue. We don't actually really um, there's a lot of information that we need to dig up or a lot of things to discover about how this system actually works and how this system actually benefits the small elite class of the population. Right. And in some ways, that consciousness raising work is really, really important to get people to uncover and think about what kind of systems they are participating in, mm-hmm. whether it's just or fair towards them as citizens, mm-hmm. you know, whether what they get out of the day is what, you know, um, really all that they deserve. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know about you guys. Like, do you even think do you own a property? Uh, no, I mean, for my generation, yet. I mean, in Singapore, like for someone of your generation, is this still something that you hope to sort of achieve in a few years' time? Is sort of like owning a property an important sort of like rite of passage? For us, I think we're almost sort of like priced out, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, our generation is like. We're, Unless your parents are rich enough, mm-hmm. uh, chances are that you wouldn't even imagine mm-hmm. sort of like owning a property and at least, you know, somewhere around downtown KL. Yeah, and I think people even these days are, I think they're more open to the idea of renting, right? Long term, no, right? Yeah, yeah so. you, it's, you're, you're pretty much stuck with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least that's the situation here in Malaysia. Yeah, yeah. What about yeah, your generation in Singapore? Do they still have yeah the same mindset of owning property? I think the majority still do. Um Although there are people who now say that, okay, like this property market's overheated, you know, there's a bit of risk that comes with it and, you know, you're better off to rent and invest 
otherwise. But that, of course, already assumes that you have cash to invest right. elsewhere. So, like, yeah. the intelligence, the financial intelligence is a big sort of, like, component to how you demonstrate that you're actually, you've grown up to become an adult yes. in Singapore. <laughs> Absolutely, right? yes. in, in some ways, it feels like it uh, from how, the, the way that you've mapped out this tra- trajectory. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, here... It doesn't sort of like have that sort of like you know cultural purchase, right? Or does it? I think it does. In some segments of society, right. it does. Yeah, mm. it's just that I think uh, some segments of society are more open to the idea of maybe not you know going through that same mindset anymore. Okay, but yeah. spatially, then it sort of like you know pans out very differently, right? Yeah. Uh, I think the idea of the suburb here has much much larger sort of like stake on the sort of like imagination. So I think in the 50s, for example, while Singapore was, you know, building public housing upwards or vertical sort of like public housing, here uh, the idea was to expand outward, right, outward from KL. And they had all these ideal home competitions and Mm -hmm. basically entries were suburban homes. You have your nice Mm -hmm. little plot of bungalow land. Uh, And that was the dream that was sort of like sold to everyone. But maybe that's not so current anymore <laughs> in this day and age. It depends, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. But I think it's important to think of that as also like a question about land use, right? Because right. it is about like how land is zoned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as people move further away from the city centre, they have to travel longer distances mm-hmm. and, and longer times to get to work. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a cost on top of that's like right. the wage, you know, on, on top of the wage you're paid. Right, job, right, right, right. Yeah. But also increasingly, people are, are less yoked to this idea that you need an office job. Mm. Uh, they're willing to sort of like work with their hands again. And I guess in a country like Malaysia, at least there is still that rural or that sort of like peri-urban sort of like environment where you can go out there and, and strike out on your own, right? And mm. But in Singapore, where it's so overdeveloped, say if you wanted a very different relationship to the land, where would you go to? Not Singapore. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's are, are Singaporeans exploring these options? Yeah. Are they, yeah. you know, uh, moving elsewhere in the region? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think even as like you know, it's attracting all the yeah. professionals <laughs> from across the region to Singapore. Yeah. The state is doing that. <laughs> I mean, as close as Johor actually, because okay. I think you know a big part of you know a big part of that sort of like. Imagination about land, you know, we were going back earlier, what we discussed earlier was about the size of your property, right, the type of right. property you move. So in fact, you could buy a large condo or even a terrace house for the price of a three-room mm. public housing flat in Singapore. right? So in some ways, it's how some Singaporeans have extended the desire to move up the property ladder right, through moving to other countries and mm. other places. Okay. Right? So this is a, I guess this is a slightly different group from those speculative investors who buy five, six properties right, right. elsewhere and still live in Singapore. Right. Um, these are actually mostly middle class or even lower middle class Singaporeans who actually want to move out of the property ladder, mm-hmm. but then say, okay, I'll maybe I'll just rent out my public housing flat and move to Johor because things are so much cheaper. Mm. And of course, that has some kind of effect on land and property prices right. across the causeway too. Right. So then we begin to kind of ask questions about actually how does this aspiration to housing actually have this transnational uh, impact across the borders mm. as well. And this transnational impact is it, not just limited to, say, a middle-class sort of like movement of sort of uh, or exchange of sort of uh, uh, human resource, right? Mm. 
it also sort of like involves like issues such as like land reclamation, mm. which involves the transportation of huge sort of like volume of soil from one place in the region to another place, to Singapore, basically, to expand Singapore's sort of like territorial boundary. Yeah. yeah. Are you so, I understand that you also work on or do some research or thinking on, along that sort of like area. Can you sort of talk more about it? Yeah, I, I think it's really important to address land reclamation. Mm. Um, in fact, since Singapore has actually increased its, the size of its territory mm-hmm. by a whopping 25%, in the last 100 or so, 200 years mm. since the colonial era. It's pretty um, much a feat of engineering, right? It's a feat, It's an amazing feat of engineering, yeah. right? But we have increased our land so much, but we never actually think about the cost it has on the people who actually lived on the land mm-hmm. um, that has been mined for its land, right? And this involves a lot of communities, peripheral communities in places like Cambodia. I think there's one point we actually imported sand from Malaysia and then stopped doing that after the Malaysian government got very unhappy about okay. it. Right. Um, so I think it's really important to explore land reclamation, right? And what that land actually ends up being used for. Okay. Because that land is always used to build condos uh-huh. or to build like maybe like petroleum or oil and gas industry complexes. It's used to build high value financial, basically land is, the land's intended to generate high financial value uh-huh. and the value never gets redistributed to the majority of the population as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay, my sort of like last question is really, uh, given that it seems like, you know, the current system really only sort of like benefits uh, the middle class or uh, the upper middle sort of like class, pop- the population, segment of the population, how are you sort of like going to convince this sort of like population that they should actually sort of like think about, you know, uh, those who are disenfranchised by their aspiration? Essentially, they were sold a dream and this dream actually has certain sort of like consequences. It's not distributed sort of like evenly. How are you going to, as a consciousness raising sort of like exercise, what is, what, what is your role and how do you sort of like go about, you know, making this persuasively? making your case persuasively. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, a, that's really difficult. I, I think, in some ways, I'm a bit pessimistic that yeah. we are able to convince the elite and the upper class who benefit from the system to actually change it because mm-hmm. like, that self-interest is there and I don't think that will ever go away in that sense. But do you think the middle class, there's still possibility? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think it's really important to build that solidarity mm-hmm. across middle class, lower middle class and, and communities who are marginalised by recognizing that this is an interest system that actually only benefits a very, uh, you know, a very, very few of that population. Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much, Rocky. Um, so you just heard from Rocky Howe, uh, and he's joined by Samson, and we've been talking about housing and land issues in Singapore. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. You can also follow us on Facebook, look for BFM Night School there. Don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can find on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, Rocky and Simon. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I'm Hanif Barudin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.